0: Log Radio.
1: You're listening to Radio Stranahan. Lee Stranahan, thank you. It was a privilege for me to meet you last weekend. You're tuned into Radio Stranahan. And now here's your presenter, Lee Stranahan.
2: Good afternoon, everybody. Lee Stranahan. America's finest journalist dedicated every day to making you smarter. How's it going? You having a nice day? It's pretty cold where I am. I'll just point that out. It's pretty cold here in the plains where I am. How are you doing? Kicking off a new show. It's going to be two hours, Monday through Friday. We're starting on a Wednesday, almost inexplicably. Got a big show here for the first show. Our guest later on this hour is going to be Michael Patrick Leahy, my colleague at Breitbart News, talking about refugee resettlement, talking about the downsides thereof, the dangers thereof, things that the mainstream media won't ever tell you, because that's how we roll here. Also, we'll be talking about the idea of populist localism, This is a concept I came up with a couple of months ago before the election, and I want to explain what it is. Hang on, let me adjust the fabulous microphone here, the blue microphone. It's not actually blue, by the way. Blue's the name of the company that makes it, just so you don't get the wrong mental picture in your head. Also, we'll be taking your calls. I'll give you that number right now. If you want to call in, be part of the show, 619-924-0786. That number again, 619-924-0786. But hey, let's talk about Time's Man of the Year, shall we? Let's start there, since we're going to be talking about things. So Time of the Year, every year Time Magazine announces their Man of the Year. And this year, not completely surprising, is Donald J. Trump, the next president of the United States. And now you know what the left is going to do. This is completely predictable. As soon as they, and by the way, the right does the same thing. I'm going to point out that the right does the same thing. As soon as someone you don't like gets the honor of being named Times Man of the Year, people always point out that Adolf Hitler was also Times Man of the Year back in the 30s. And so that's an easy hit, right? If you're a Republican and Barack Obama wins man of the year, you're going to say, oh, yeah, well, they did the same thing for Hitler, thereby comparing Obama to Hitler, and that's effective, right? And so, of course, this year, as soon as they mentioned that Donald Trump might be man of the year, the people on social media, the leftists on social media, we're going mental, or should I say mental? Or I don't care if that's not a word, by the way. They were going mental, saying, "Well, of course, because Hitler." And by the way, the reason I say it's ineffective is they have been comparing Trump to Hitler for about eighteen months now. And I don't know if you people on the left notice this. I'm going to give you a clue here. Ready? Get get close to the speaker. Uh, he won anyway. I'm going to say that again. I'll say it a little louder. He won anyway. So all of the Hitler comparisons apparently weren't enough to make, you know, intelligent people, I guess that's the term I'd use, intelligent people actually realized that he wasn't Hitler. And I got to say, one of the mistakes the left made in this election is when you start out calling your opponent Hitler. There's very little room to go. You don't there's like it's not a, they they went to Satan pretty quickly because they realized they'd blocked themselves in. But when you start at Hitler, like just a suggestion start with Mussolini. Right? I mean in, in fact, if you're going to go higher on the murderous dictator chart than Hitler, it's tricky. Stalin, you got Stalin, sure but we can't use him because he's a communist. So he's therefore better than Hitler. I don't really, you could, you could go with uh, Ho Chi Minh. You could go with the Vietnamese. You could go with the Chinese, not as popular, but again, communists. So really, eh, you can't, can't really do that. But I'm just going to say, just, I'm giving you free advice here. Don't start at Hitler. It's a bad negotiating technique. Start uh, start with a uh, you know a sort of lower level dictator, maybe somebody that people can relate to a little bit more. I don't know, Rahm Emanuel possibly. I don't know, but start lower and then build to Hitler. That's what I'm saying. Go slowly, build to Hitler. But they didn't do that with Trump, and and so now, of course, you know all you have to do. I, I haven't even done it. I should do it. Here, I'll do it right now. Look, I have a computer in front of me. It's fabulous technology. These computers—they're going to catch on. I'm just going to go to Twitter. Have you heard of this thing, Twitter? It's like thinking, but 140 characters. So I'm just going to type in Trump, Time, Hitler. Let me see. We'll type that in. And what do we end up with? Yeah, immediately, Sean King. Immediately, top of, top of the list, Sean King. Now, you remember Sean King? Sean King's the Black Lives Matter activist. Some people, my Annapolis, have openly questioned they openly questioned whether Sean King was black. And uh, Sean King eventually was forced to admit that he's at least half not black and that he didn't, he didn't, it is not sure who his dad is. That's who Sean King is. And, and by the way, Sean King, for all uh, the controversy, he's blocked. So I can't tell you much about him. When I say he's blocked, I mean, he's blocked me. I'm pretty proud of that block. But Sean King uh, got a writing gig. I believe the New York Daily News, if I'm correct. I might know this if if I wasn't blocked. But even though I'm blocked, it shows up in in, uh, search results. Here's what Sean King has to say. Sean King, this is enlightening. Just a reminder, Hitler, Stalin, Putin, Trump, time person of the year. Trump actually very much deserves to be in this company. Now, by the way, there are other people who, let's say you had low self-esteem. Remember a few years ago, Trump's person of the year was you? Remember that one? Like sort of a shiny cover. You could see your reflection in it. It's kind of a cop-out, really, a little bit. But I'm just saying, that was their person of the year. Like if you had really low self-esteem, you would look at that cover and immediately go, well... I, Sure, I'm person of the year, but so is Hitler. You know? I love how Sean King threw in Putin. Stalin, Hitler, Putin. There is a lower. Putin, you know, Putin was with the KGB. Putin's not a a, a fuzzy teddy bear, but Stalin, Hitler, I'm not so sure. I'm questioning that one. But again, this is the easiest thing in the world to do. The Independent. Newspaper, U.K. newspaper, Donald Trump, was just named Time's Person of the Year. Hitler got that title, too. You're a genius here. James Melville, I don't know who James Melville is, but he doesn't have me blocked. It says here he's a PR professional from Cornwall. So he's a British PR professional. There's probably a joke in somewhere, but I'm not ready to make it. He chimed in and pointed out that the Ayatollah Khomeini won. So this is real easy. What you do is – now, first off, this tells you that person of the year doesn't mean best person of the year. Does that make sense? It doesn't mean, like, most awesome person of the year. It means most impactful person of the year. That's what time is talking about, the person who they think had the most impact on the election, right? Oh, not the election. That'd be pretty narrow. They can only come out with it every four years, really. Who who had the most impact on the world, right? And so there's lots of people who you like, probably, who've won time of the year. It's not all Hitler and Stalin and whichever politician you don't like. That you won, most of you probably liked that. That would look as me. Impactful, Right. And so this is what they do. It's the easiest thing in the world. It is lazy, lazy, lazy. So, of course, Sean King does it. By the way, Sean King is invited to call in. <laughs> Someone let Sean know. Again, I'm blocked. But if Sean wants to call in, the number is 619 That number again, 619 924 to call in. And be part of the show. Sean King, put that on speed dial. You're, Sean, you're welcome to call in any time. I'd love to talk to Sean King. These people who blocked me, Sean King, Representative Keith Ellison, the first Muslim elected to Congress, or as I like to call him, the first Muslim elected to Congress who blocked me. That's my pet name for him. Any of them, you're welcome to call in any time. Dial the number. By the way, if you're not Sean King or Keith Ellison, you're also welcome to call in. Uh, but it's Sean King's lazy. <laughs> Let's face it. No, that's not and that's not a racial thing. I it's the ha- it's the half white part of Sean King that's lazy. Let me point that out. That's what I'm saying. It's not all of Sean King, it's just the white part that's lazy. So don't don't accuse me of that. Uh, But Sean King's lazy He's a lazy writer He's a lazy thinker He's a guy who jumped in front of the Black Lives Matter parade He's not even one of the founders I'm very critical of Black Lives Matter But that movement was founded by three women Patrice Cullors, Opal Tometi, and Alicia Garza Who I'm also very critical of But they started it They started it And they knew because they were women That they would probably get, you know knocked off the pedestal as the founders of Black Lives Matter. And sure enough, people like Sean King, even DeRay McKesson, I'm not saying they tried to, but Sean King and DeRay McKesson are both better known as Black Lives Matter leaders than the people, the women, who actually founded it. I'm just saying. That's just true. That is an advantage of being a dude. You're generally better No, you, you appear more leaderly again, not a word, but there is something about being male where if you see a guy and, and a lady, people just do subconsciously assume the guy's in charge. And uh, probably there's probably some evolutionary reason for that, such as men are typically bigger and stronger and, have been leaders more throughout history. That could be part of the subconscious thing. You could argue that it's not right, but, you know, that's all you can argue. You can just sort of stamp your feet against history. If you're the kind of person who likes stamping your feet about facts, that's a good one to stamp your feet about. But Sean King, of course he goes for that, because, again, this is a guy who jumped in front of the Black Lives Matter parade. He saw something going on. He he'd tried his hand at activism before, never succeeded in anything. So now he's jumping into it with his lame, dumb, lazy tweets. And, of course, his New York Daily News column, because why not? And people have pointed out, it, look, Sean King is fish in a barrel. When it comes to criticizing someone, he's an easy guy to criticize. Uh, therefore, I'll keep doing it. Don't, don't, don't worry. I'm not – I am not above – the easy road. Eric Clapton had a quote that I like. Eric Clapton once said, given the choice between accomplishing something and laying around, I'll pick laying around, no contest. Now, given he may have said that when he was using heroin, it's possible, but it's still a good quote. And I I don't really have the context. By the way, trivia note, here's another way I make you smarter. Did you know that Eric Lapson recorded much of the Layla album, the great album by Derek and the Dominoes, Layla and other assorted love songs, and assorted love songs, whatever you call it, that album, the Layla album, Uh, he recorded a lot of that laying on the floor of the studio, he was so depressed when he made that album, that's the blues, when you're so depressed you can't get off the studio floor, that's the blues, but I digress. So I'm going to tell you who I think should have won Time's Person of the Year. I'll, well, I'll just go with Man of the Year. I'll be political. You're not supposed to say man, I guess. I don't know. It's hard to tell the rules anymore. So I'm going to tell you who I think should have won Time Magazine's Gender Nonspecific Sentient Being of the Year, whatever we're allowed to call it now. I think – no, I'm just, I'm going to go with man. Forgive me. Scratch that. I'm going to go right back to man. I'll tell you who I think should have won. And this is not sucking up, although uh, uh, let me, I, I will take an ambassadorship in Fiji, but I'm not sucking up. I think it should have been Stephen K. Bannon, my friend and former boss at Breitbart News, Stephen K. Bannon. So let me tell you why. And again, I'm going to give you a little bit of a history lesson here. Because my goal, as I will continually point out to you, is to make you smarter. I talked a little about this on my Periscope last night. Uh, And and I'm still going to do Periscopes. By the way, if you're one of my Periscope followers, I'm still going to keep doing Periscopes. But let let me talk about it. Stephen K. Bannon, let's remind ourselves of where the Trump campaign was when Stephen Bannon took over. But before I do that, Let me tell you why I think Steve should be the person of the year. It's not just that he helped get Trump elected. It's not just that he's been named as the head of strategy for the Trump campaign. It's that Steve was instrumental in two things that happened this year. The Brexit vote, the vote by the United Kingdom to leave the European Union led by Nigel Farage and his UKIP, the UK Independent Party. But the thing that helped that happen is Steve Bannon made a choice a couple of years ago to expand Breitbart. Steve was the executive chairman of Breitbart News. And Steve made the call to expand Breitbart into the United Kingdom and open up a UK office brought in people like Raheem Kassam. I got to get Raheem on the show. Raheem's great. And also he's fun to go to dinner with. So uh, Raheem was one of the people that Bannon put in place there. And Raheem used to be Nigel Farage's assistant, basically. He, and in fact, recently Raheem was trying to uh, get leadership of UKIP. And I... I do they vote on those things? I don't know how it works. I'm not up I'm not really up to date enough on English British English British which one? The British? Whatever you call it, I'm not really up on the way that they put people in at UKIP. I think the queen is involved and a sword and uh whoever can pull the sword out of the queen. I may have the facts wrong in this. I'm not sure. I'm not looking at my notes right now. But however they do it, I would have voted for Raheem. No, they don't pull the sword out of the Queen. No. That was a different time. That's history. But Stephen K. Bannon made the called shot to start the U.K. office of Breitbart News to put resources into the U.K. And sure enough, that U.K. vote, which was close... I think Breitbart News being in the UK reporting on the Leave vote day after day after day after day in a way that even papers in England didn't want to cover it. Because you got to remember, UKIP is, uh, is the Donald Trump of British politics. I don't know what I mean by that. <laughs> but I'm going to say it again because I think it sounds pithy. UKIP is the Donald Trump of... British politics. Let me explain. I know I said I don't know what I mean by that, but I'm going to make it sound like I know what I mean. You'll notice who Trump went against. It was the establishment. Not just the establishment on the left, but the establishment on the right as well. Okay? You've noticed this. Right? I'm not, I'm not telling you anything new there. In the same way UKIP was actually challenging both the Tories, the British conservative. They call them Tories just because they're British, and they like to call things by different names than uh, proper American language does. For instance, they call trucks lorries, lorries, Tories. Is there a conspiracy here? I don't know. We report, you, you figure out what we mean. That's my slogan. I may I may work on that one, but the British they call things an apartment in England. See how I'm making you smarter? An apartment in England is called a flat, whereas in the United States, for instance, we'd call it a circle, uh, I, something else, something that's not a flat. An apartment, that's what we call it. Let's go with that. So <laughs> a, but they call things by different names. So the Tories, who are the conservatives. In England, UKIP, a lot of conservatives, there are papers like the Daily Mail, for instance, which is a conservative paper. You have the Guardian, which is a liberal paper. Uh, And UKIP doesn't fit into either one neatly. And so my point is that you have conservative and liberal media in England. I'll try to make this point in a less stupid way. Hang on. I won't talk about lorries or flats here. Let me make my point, because it's a serious one. UKIP was an anti-establishment party in England. They're an anti-elitist party, right? And so, Nigel's vision there was to get the United Kingdom out of the European Union, because he saw the European Union control as something dangerous to the country. And so it was a nationalist movement. It was a pro-England, pro-United Kingdom. There's other countries. Sure, the, the Welsh were in there somewhere. But it's a pro-U.K. movement saying basically, let's have the U.K. run by the U.K. Got it? And Steve Bannon saw that happening. He decided to open an office. This is why I think Steve Bannon should be the man of the year this year, in my opinion, over Trump. Because Trump's Steve Bannon's the guy who saw that. And Steve Bannon's also the guy who saw the same possibility in Donald Trump, who's opposed to both the Democrat and Republican elites, is his own third party. In a weird way, Trump is his own third party. That's why he pulled, he's pulled in voters. You had a lot of Republicans who were very discouraged by the Republican Party. They were discouraged by two losses to Obama, but not just that. They were also discouraged by the candidates who'd lost to Obama and the way that they lost to Obama. And not just that. Let's just go – I could go off on this, and I will at length, since I have two hours a day to talk about this stuff. But a guy like John McCain, okay, a guy like John McCain is a disappointment in every way, on almost every issue. The Gang of Eight immigration bill, for example – The Gang of Eight immigration bill, comprehensive immigration reform, a subject we'll be talking about a great deal on this show, comprehensive immigration reform. John McCain is on the bad guy's side about that. Now, if you don't agree that he's on the bad guy's side, you're wrong. And, you know, we'll explain that to you in the course of time. You'll come around because my goal is to make you smarter. And after you're smarter, you'll agree that comprehensive immigration reform is awful. Until then, if you don't agree, that's fine. Just stick around. It's going to be a growing process. It's a learning process. I will be holding your hand as we go on this journey, metaphorically. I have to say this for legal reasons. No actual hand-holding will be involved. The lawyers require me to say that. Because I don't want to get sued and then have to hold someone's hand for like three years as punishment. A judge could do that. They could just bang your gavel, bam, and I'm, I'm not going to hold some dude's hand. Or lady, whatever I don't I just assume it's a dude who would sue. I don't assume there's a lady out there who's going to sue so I can hold their hand that's my my point there, so back to Trump. by the way, get used to tangents. they're not tangents if I eventually come back around. Remember that they're parenthetical commentary that's what they are. So with Donald Trump, you got a guy who really is his own third party. He challenged both the Democrats and the Republicans. And you can see that because all the Republican establishment, including the Republican media, the conservative media, not just long-established conservative media like the National Review, who you'll recall did a full issue against Trump. Multiple people, they really tried to stack. They wanted to destroy Trump. That's National Review. But also new media like Glenn Beck. Let me do a parenthetical commentary on Glenn Beck, by the way. If you're not a fan of Glenn Beck, oh, stay tuned to this show. I was talking to a friend of mine about doing this show. And I said, I'm going to let you in a little uh, radio secret, a little broadcasting secret for you. I learned this from Howard Stern. And no, it doesn't involve baloney. I know what you're thinking. Get that out of your head. I learned this from Howard Stern. It's good to have enemies, right? When you're when you do radio, it's good to have enemies. Howard was brilliant at having enemies. He would come into a new city. I remember I lived in Los Angeles. I, I've been a long time Howard Stern listener. And uh when Howard came into Los Angeles, his enemy was Mark and Brian, who were doing the radio show. And he did this in city after city after city, man in Chicago, on and on and on. He made enemies. So I decided, I was talking to a friend, I said, if I'm going to have an enemy, I think it's going to be Glenn Beck. I really do. Not just because Glenn Beck was such a flaming a-hole during this election not just because he was psychotic during the election, not just because he unfairly criticized and all the stuff I said about calling Trump Hitler and how lazy that is. Beck did all of that. And not just because of the way Glenn Beck betrayed my friend and mentor, Andrew Breitbart, which I should, I should do a segment about that sometime. Uh, but also because Glenn Beck I think by actively trying to get Hillary elected in this campaign is certifiably dangerous. And the stuff that he began to say about Black Lives Matter, this is a guy who is flailing for attention. Glenn Beck is a guy who's flailing for attention. I'm probably not supposed to mention his alcoholism, but I will because he's a recovering drunk, right? And he's got that thing. And I I don't say this without sympathy because I had a friend of mine drink drink himself to death, literally drink himself to death. My best friend growing up drank himself to death. And I don't understand it. I'll never understand it. Can't ask him because he killed himself, right? Literally drank himself to death. Knew he had a problem. But there is something about that mentality that Beck has where he's got a self-destructive thing going on. Beck's whole thing is that at one point he was one of the most revered people in the country. He'll tell you this. He's talked about if you're a Beck listener or a former Beck listener, because there's a lot more former Beck listeners now than there are Beck listeners. You know he's talked about that. He was once one of the most admired people in the country, and now he's not. And so he's flailing. He's flailing like an octopus that's been electrocuted. Not that I would know. So let me close my parentheses on that and just say that Glenn Beck, if you want, if, if you don't like Glenn Beck, just stay tuned, because Beck's the guy who I'm going to talk about week after week after week uh, until he's crying in a corner somewhere, which, by the way, is not that tricky to do. So as opposed to a guy like Glenn Beck and Blaze and his minions over there, including my former friend, Dana Lash. That's a whole other story. But his minions over there, including my former friend, Ben Howe, a lot of people who I liked, who just pour in the Kool-Aid and they drank it up, right? Unlike the establishment conservative press, like the National Review, even Fox News, even Glenn Beck, Donald Trump, needed a media outlet, who wouldn't call him Hitler? Right? Because that's not a good argument, by the way. And of course, Beck himself called Trump Hitler over and over and over again. He did that over and over and over again. Beck, a guy who's dressed like a Nazi for a book cover, which is a whole other interesting psychological projection thing. Beck, By the way, we have Michael Patrick Leahy coming up in just a minute here. Uh, But Beck, a guy who did that, they had to – he had to destroy Beck. So uh, so forgive me. So Beck had to destroy Trump. And so what I'm saying is Trump needed a media outlet who would treat him fairly. And just like Breitbart UK treated Farage and the Leave people fairly, not calling them racist, sexist, Hitler – all this stuff, so in the United States, Trump had Breitbart. It's not that we were in the bag for him, it's that we treated him fairly. That's what we did. And of course, now they're all over Breitbart so doing that. So in my opinion, the guy who should have been Times Man of the Year is Stephen K. Bannon, because his called shots gave both the UK Leave movement and the Donald Trump movement, the media platform it needed, the fair hearing that it needed, once people were able to actually hear the truth about it, leave one and Trump one. And I give Steve Bannon all the credit for that. But it's time to talk to Michael Patrick Leahy. I have music, by the way, for this. Let's, let's play the, we're going to be talking about refugee resettlement. So without any further ado. Oops, it's dramatic. Wait, it dramatically went lower. Hang on a second. There we go. That's a better volume, I think. Joining us now, Michael Patrick Leahy, reporter for Breitbart News. My colleague, my friend, and one of the leading people talking about refugee resettlement in the country, particularly the issue of the danger of disease, Michael Patrick Leahy. Mike, how you doing?
1: Uh, Great to be with you, Lee, and I note with great interest that on Wednesday evening, Bill O'Reilly on the O'Reilly Factor called for a one-year moratorium, a complete moratorium on uh, the federal refugee resettlement program here in the United States. That's a very significant uh, uh, event in the media, I think.
2: Yeah, it is. And were you saying he did that last night? Wednesday night. No, but wait, today's, is today, am I, con- today's Wednesday, Mike? Uh, you are correct. <laughs> okay. Well, I it thought was you Monday had, night. It was Monday night, rather. Thanks. I thought you had something really breaking, which is not only O'Reilly's announcement that, but, that you'd invented time travel, and that would be a big, <laughs> that would be big news right there, but you instead, bet. instead, you've got the big story that O'Reilly on Monday called for, for a one-year moratorium. Yeah, that is a big deal. Uh, because Fox still is a player that 's sort of reminiscent of what Trump was saying, kind of sorta after mm-hmm, San, mm-hmm. after San Bernardino uh, so let 's get in and talk about this, and I, 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 let me thank you once again. I appreciate you being the first guest here on the Money through Friday radio, Stranahan, these uh, the, uh, the test broadcast. the test I, I call it that because things could go technically wrong at any moment. That's possible. It's exciting. We're still working out.
1: Yeah.
2: You heard the music was a little too loud there, but at least we had intro music for (laughs) you. So that was I'm proud of that. So so let's talk about this, Mike, because you've been writing about the refugee issue for a long time now. And you and I have worked on the story. Uh, Are,
1: Are you there? Lee, Michael Patrick Leahy back here. with you
2: hi you can hear me now right i can okay so just as i was saying there could be technical problems we had a big technical there are. problem so
3: so that <laughs> time
2: it's, it's that time travel thing once again i could actually hear you when you called back and my microphone had dropped for some reason so there we go anyway so let's talk about refugee resettlement so how how long have you been reporting on this and what got you into it let's just start there. you know
1: i yeah, I started reporting on this over a year ago in November of 2015, and this came out of an in, uh, my interest in a local story here in Tennessee. I live in Nashville, Tennessee, one of the greatest states in the union with no income tax and beautiful hills and valleys and mountains and uh, wonderful people, and uh, uh, and a great state legislature. Uh, not such a great governor, but a great state legislature. And uh, a number of state legislators here in Tennessee were unhappy with the continuation of the refugee resettlement program in the state after, in 2008, then-Governor Phil Bredesen uh, decided to uh, 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 withdraw the state from the federal program, uh, becoming uh, Now there are 14 states that have withdrawn from the program. And under the Refugee Act of 1980, there's no statutory authority by which the federal government can resettle refugees in a state that is withdrawn from the program. That hasn't stopped the Office of Refugee Resettlement under first President Bill Clinton, uh, then President George W. Bush, and then subsequently uh, under President Barack Obama from creating the statutory authority to do that uh, in, in a in a regulatory process in which they took uh, the Wilson Fish amendment to the 1984 Immigration and Nationalization Act and subverted it in a regulation that authorizes the federal government to name a resettlement agency to take over the program when the state withdraws. And so, anyways, there were legislators here who thought that was unconstitutional, and they began a process of deciding to sue the federal government over it. A long story from then until uh, May of 2016, that the General Assembly passed such a, a joint resolution to file such a lawsuit. The governor, uh, who didn't like that lawsuit, ended up not uh, vetoing it, and the, the General Assembly now has hired the Thomas More Law Center to, to sue the federal government on this. And they will uh, sometime in the next several months
2: and so no th- that's interesting, but you know that 's what happened locally, and then, as you started to dig into this, you've discovered that that this is really a, na- it's a this is a national issue
1: oh it's a national but, problem, yes, in fact, we have uh in fiscal year two thousand and sixteen over eighty five thousand refugees came to the United states about forty four percent of them uh, were Muslim, and uh, many of them came from uh countries that are hostile to the United States, like Syria or Somalia. And uh, uh, these refugees are not properly vetted from a security standpoint, or are they vetted uh, from a health standpoint? And that's what I've focused on because I've been able to uh, obtain by uh, pushing very aggressively uh, public data on tuberculosis rates among refugees here in the United States, and uh, it, it is stunningly high because they arrive here uh, with with high de- uh, levels of latent tuberculosis, which then become active, and many actually some arrive here with active tuberculosis. Um, the, 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 the rate of foreign-born tuberculosis in the United States has increased uh, by from 22% in 1986 to 66% in 2015. And so a lot of that comes from these refugees who arrive with very, very high rates of latent t b ranging from you know twelve percent in Florida uh to twenty two percent in Minnesota to thirty five percent in uh in Vermont very, very high. that contrasts with the latent rate of four percent uh for the general population now latent t b means you have the the bacteria, but you haven't developed the disease as it turns out about Five or 10% of the general population will, if they have latent TB, will develop active TB. Not quite sure exactly why it activates. Usually it's because of stress to the system. As it turns out, the activation rate among refugees is much, much higher because their living circumstances are more stressful and uh, there are probably more bad health habits, shall we say, among arriving refugees.
2: Now, when you say stress, for instance, uh, to the body. Could, uh, could, would an example of that possibly be going from Africa to Minnesota, two places? <laughs> <that> basically, <laughs> yes. Basically, I can't imagine. I, I guess I can, <laughs> uh, but I, it's hard to imagine two much more different climates than Africa and Minnesota. Um, and so, I mean, is that is that a factor? Not all all kidding aside. I mean, could could that be a factor? I don't know. Yes,
1: a dramatic change in in, in climate, a dramatic change in, in uh, food, shall we say, and, and uh, culture, uh, plus living conditions uh, typically in in refugee camps overseas. Before the uh, people are approved to, uh, in this very sieve like process to come to the United States. You know, refugee camps are very crowded, uh, and crowded circumstances um, often uh, lead to uh, the decline in immune systems among people who live there. And then you add to that just you know, lack of, of uh, good health habits that typically uh, you see in, uh, in several of these uh, foreign-born populations.
2: Remember, if you want to call in and talk to Michael Patrick Leahy, if you have any questions about refugee resettlement, the number is 619-924-0786. We're on live right now, unless you're listening to this recorded, in which case you should learn the difference between live and recorded. But if if you're listening live, 619-924-0786. So let me give you a devil's advocate question, Michael, because I want to get more into the tuberculosis thing. Well, let's take this to a 50,000-foot level. So are you opposed to the refugee? Are you opposed to refugees? Let's just start there. Well, uh,
1: that's a really good question. I think uh, in 1980, uh, Congress passed the Refugee Act of, uh, of 1980, which authorized the arrival of refugees fleeing uh, political oppression, uh, in countries and in, into the United States, but that's been really transformed into uh, an oppor- an economic opportunity. Uh, people who want to come to the United States for economic opportunity. Um, I personally, I, I think that there's probably a role for uh, the United States as a safe haven for those fleeing true oppression. Um, uh, so I, I wouldn't you know categorically uh, uh, oppose Uh, Some refugees arriving, you know, if I was running the program, it wouldn't be 85,000 a year. It might be 5,000 a year. Clearly, I would not allow uh, people to uh, enter the United States who, A, uh, had not been properly vetted, who had health problems, uh, who came from countries that were hostile to the United States. And I certainly would uh, enforce the requirement of the Refugee Act of 1980 that uh, requires the State Department to consult with and I would argue obtain the uh, approval of uh, local states and local municipalities where these refugees are being settled. Now, as to the issue of, uh, you know, the best place for refugees who are displaced for one reason or another, uh, really the best place, most cost-effective, the most culturally appropriate would be in safe havens, that uh, are, you know, within reach of their home countries. That is the most logical thing to do, and that's what I would really support, Lee.
2: So you're saying, for instance, that Muslim refugees who are fleeing, let's say, Syria, let's just throw out Syria as an example, who are largely Sunni, you're saying that those refugees, you're suggesting it's a pretty radical suggestion, Mike. You're suggesting that they go to, let's say, a Sunni Muslim country like, like uh, let's say, Saudi Arabia. Is that the idea? Is that the, the
0: yeah, that idea? would make
2: sense, wouldn't it? Now, he, he, listen to this.
1: So Pakistan, as you know, uh, is a country that's 96% Muslim. And uh, the Somali refugee who attacked... 11 people at Ohio State on November 28th, Abdul Razak Ali Artan, he and his mother and his six siblings fled Somalia in 2007 and lived in Pakistan from 2007 to 2014, and then uh, uh, were approved for arrival in the Federal Refugee Resettlement Program here in the United States, and they came uh, briefly to Dallas, Texas for 23 days, um, resettled by Catholic Charities of Dallas, and then they skipped town and became secondary migrants and moved to Columbus, Ohio, on June 28th of 2014. Now, interestingly enough, Pakistan has a very, very small Somali community, uh, estimated at less than 4,000. Pakistan, uh, and by the way, 99% of the 100,000 plus uh, Somali refugees who have uh, uh, been resettled in the United States. Uh, since 1990, um, are Muslim. Uh, only about one percent of the U.S. population is Muslim, and yet Pakistan will not allow um, Somali refugees living temporarily in Pakistan to have permanent asylum there. They are actually there, supported by the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. They get a you know a regular small stipend to live there. But Pakistan refuses to allow them to have asylum.
2: Now, what sense
1: does that make, Lee?
2: Well, it makes a lot of sense from Pakistan's standpoint. Uh, you know, it's the same thing. As, as you know, the number of refugees uh, from Syria that have been brought into Saudi Arabia, I think – let's do this in round numbers. What's the number? I think it's uh, – it's zero, correct? Is that is that it? They, I it's,
1: yes. If not zero, it approaches zero.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm rounding it off, but um, and the reason Saudi Arabia is given for it is the most Islamic thing in the world. They're afraid of terrorism, so the reason that Saudi Arabia hasn't taken these refugees in is they're worried about terrorism from Muslim refugees. Now again. Right. As soon as you say that in the United States, right, uh, you're a racist for saying that, and you're an Islamophobe and everything else. Yet that's exactly the reasoning that Saudi Arabia is given for doing it. And when you get a country like Pakistan, which is the birthplace of al-Qaeda, right? Al-Qaeda was formed in Peshawar, Pakistan, in the mid-'80s when Osama bin Laden and his mentor, Azam, had the services office there. That's what became al-Qaeda, right? They would, they would help Mujahideen, who would go into Pakistan, and uh, they would help them fight the Russians. And after that operation was over, they started to move to Bosnia and other places. Azam got killed, uh, Zawahiri came in, but that's what happened. That was, that's the genesis of Al Qaeda is Peshawar, Pakistan. And over and over, we see problems in Pakistan. In fact, I I forget where where did Osama bin Laden? Where was he killed again? You remember yeah, where? Yeah, I would say it was yeah, it was Pakistan. It was Pakistan. That's right. He he started Al Qaeda in Pakistan, and then liked it so much he came back. Apparently, I've never been to Pakistan. I you know. I assume it's if if here's what I'm saying if someone been like bin Laden liked it must be awesome right that's the theory so it, the fact that somebody spent time in Pakistan doesn't make me sleep better knowing that they were there for a while and then they want to come to this country and I think the other thing no, people don't talk but yeah yeah no go ahead michael
1: no i was just gonna say yeah i think it's a very good point and and, and let me just uh, make another point there there's something called the Somali diaspora. In other words, uh, Somalia is a war-torn country uh, that's an economic disaster. And since 1990, the number of Somalis living abroad has increased from 800,000 to 2 million in in 2015, over 25 years. Uh, It's a diaspora much as the Irish diaspora was in the 1840s when they had the potato famine. Uh, in Ireland, or the, the Jewish diaspora was uh, after uh, the fall of Masada in 77 AD. Now, what's interesting is where are all these Somalis living today? Well, about 490,000 are living in refugee camps in Kenya. Kenya recently decided to send a whole bunch of them back to Somalia. Uh, in the West, Guess what country is home to the most Somali migrants and refugees? It's the United States.
2: Yeah, I was going to guess the country that just elected Donald Trump. That was going to be my guess. 150,000.
1: exactly right. Here in the United States, according to the United Nations, uh, far behind the United Kingdom has 110,000, and Canada has only 20,000. So uh, I'm looking for Saudi Arabia on the list of Somali refugees, and guess what? It's not there.
2: Well, and it should be pointed out the reason the refugees come over from Somalia is because of terror groups like al-Shabaab, right? So al-Shabaab, I mean, I'm not saying this is the reason the refugees come over. Scratch that. The reason the country's a hellhole, let me put it that way. The reason the country (laughs) is a disaster right now is in part— because it's a big part of it is groups like al-Shabaab, which is an al-Qaeda affiliate. It's another Sunni Muslim Wahhabist terror group. Wahhabiism is the fundamentalist form of Islam that's been propagated by Saudi Arabia, right? Ara- Wahhabiism is the official state religion. It's the sect of Islam that Saudi Arabia believes in, and they spread that throughout the world. And when it got to Somalia, it became al-Shabaab. Al-Shabaab is is a Wahhabist group. And, you know, you talk about the the number of refugees, and we talked about Minnesota before. As you know, the biggest place where those refugees are is Keith Ellison's, first Muslim elected to Congress who blocked me, Keith Ellison's home district uh, is Little Mogadishu, which is where the largest yes. concentration of Somalis are. And you, you you mentioned this before, but let's go back because I want to hit on this. Minneapolis is not just the home of the largest Somali population in North America, basically, possibly outside of Somalia. I'm not. Is it is it it might be, but I'm not, I'm not going to quote that because I don't know it offhand. And I, I have this thing about facts. I like to get them right. But it's a huge population of Somalis, right? Yeah, 70,000 in, live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The second
1: highest uh, is uh, in Columbus, Ohio, where it's estimated to be about 38,000 population. Interestingly enough, of the two Somali refugees involved in uh, violent attacks recently, Dahir Adan, who in September uh, attacked uh, 10 people at a mall in St. Cloud, Minnesota, before he was shot and killed by an off-duty police officer – was a Somali refugee who arrived in the 1990s with his father in Fargo, North Dakota, and then was a secondary migrant to uh, St. Cloud, Minnesota, and kind of moved between St. Cloud and Minneapolis. Um, and then uh, the, the second recent institute, uh, incident of a Somali refugee involved in a terrorist act uh, here was uh, Abdul Razak uh, uh, Ali Artan, who on November 28th attacked 11 uh, Americans on Ohio State University's campus with a, first a, a car and then with a knife until he was shot and killed by a campus police officer. Um, he uh, arrived with his mother in, and six siblings in Dallas in, 2000, in 2014 and quickly, after 23 days, moved to Columbus, Ohio, the second largest Somali community in the United States.
2: Now, so you mentioned before you were talking about these tuberculosis rates. And, by the way, before I ask you this, let's just refresh people. Because one of the things is a lot of people, particularly if you're younger, you may hear the term tuberculosis. You may not actually know what that is. Uh, And it's just true. It's a disease like polio that had largely been eradicated in the United States, right? And so – If it's
1: not treated, it's usually mortal. But there is – uh, there is a, a standard treatment of four particular, regimen of four drugs that's been used for over 50 years that, you know, for $17,000 and after six to nine months, uh, you're cured if you go through that regimen. Uh, what we found in the United States, however, is for the first time in 23 years, in 2015, the number of tuberculosis cases increased by 1.7% from 9,400 to a little over 9,500. And that was powered by the increase in uh, foreign-born cases of tuberculosis to more than 66%.
2: So can you you just describe, can you just explain what tuberculosis is before we get deep in the numbers on Minnesota? Just so people know, people don't know what tuberculosis is. Oh, it's it's an
1: entirely debilitating disease that... uh, 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 as can is is primarily pulmonary, although about thirty percent of the cases uh are are non pulmonary um, and but if it's in other words the, the famous author Thomas Wolfe, who grew up in Asheville, North Carolina, which was a center at the time for a treatment of tuberculosis, actually developed tuberculosis of the brain, for instance, and died of that but it 's a very, very debilitating Disease that when it becomes activated, uh, when it's pulmonary in your lungs, it essentially destroys your, your lungs. Um, you remember the old, the old uh, gunfighter Doc Holliday from White Earth fame um, had tuberculosis, died of it. Uh, it was called consumption back then, and the, the number of people who died of tuberculosis was very, very high as a percentage of the population throughout the 19th century and even the early 20th century. It wasn't until uh, this regimen of drugs came about in the 1950s um, that we were able to to effectively uh, solve tuberculosis, but with the rise of active TB coming in from uh, refugees and foreign-born migrants, as well as the very, very high rate of latent TB, uh, there has been a resurgence of not only tuberculosis, but an even more dangerous form called multi-drug-resistant TB. That's deadly uh, in 60% of the cases. It's common in the rest of the world, has not been common in the United States, uh, but uh, the number of cases of uh, multi-drug-resistant TB uh, was 91 in 2014, uh, 90% of those, 89% of those were foreign born. So, multi drug resistant TB comes in from other countries. Um, and, and, and by it, the way, it, pretty much
2: any disease that you put the phrase multi drug resistant in front of, it's, I, it's not good. I'm not, a, I'm not a doctor, but I'm just saying once you hear multi drug resistant anything, it's bad. You know what I mean? Like a multi drug resistant headache. That's a headache yes, you don't want to get. It's not good. So, and in fact,
1: what we found is that that many of these foreign-born uh, migrants uh, who have multi-drug resistant TB are, in fact, refugees. There were two in Tennessee over the past five years, and there were several in Wisconsin, actually in the uh, uh, in the vicinity of Paul Ryan's congressional district, uh, for instance. And so, you know, there are very, very serious health concerns. Uh, about uh, allowing refugees from countries that have uh, high burdens of tuberculosis uh, into the United States. And there's a very good public health reason, really, to completely end uh, the resettlement of refugees and migrants uh, from uh, countries that have high burdens of TB.
2: Now, Michael, can you hold on for just one more segment? I want to get to uh, we got to go to a quick break here, but I, I'd like you to hold on for one more. Can you, you bet. do that? That'd be great. We're going to come back with Michael Patrick Leahy talking about refugee resettlement in just one minute. Hang on. If I hit the right button here. Because, by the way, I'm engineering the show as well, so it's pretty exciting. By all, first mention uh, Lee Stranahan. Cuddly, he's my friend. Yeah, he got thrown out of the club for reporting stories that were being suppressed. Radio Stranahan. Hey, Radio Stranding is brought to you today by my own Citizen Journalism School, citizenjournalismschool.com. That's where you can learn how to write, research, publish, get the story, get the facts right. In this era of fake news and everybody talking about fake news and all the fake news outlets also talking about fake news, uh, these are skills you need to learn And you can learn them at Citizen Journalism School. I have a free gift for you. It's a course called Build Your Own Media Empire, where I take you step-by-step through everything you need to know. So you can write, podcast, do video, all of that stuff. It's free. Go right now to citizenjournalismschool.com. Sign up for that. That course is coming very soon. I just went through a move, and I was a little sick, so it slowed me down. But that course you'll be able to take online at your own pace com, and the show is also brought to you by the show. This is going to get a little recursive here. Hold on. Just strap in. Get a seatbelt if you have one in your chair or, or sofa. Uh, the show is brought to you by the show because I'm also looking for advertisers. I'm also looking for sponsors. We're going to be doing this show for about another three or four weeks, and if you want your message told uh, you know, a couple times during the show – I'd love to have your money. That's the way this advertising thing works. You give me money. I talk about you. It sounds I know it sounds like blackmail, but it's actually the way the industry works. I know when you hear it put like that, though, it's like, what? How does that work? But it's how it works. So contact me. You can reach me at stranahan at gmail.com. That's my last name, Stranahan. If you don't know how to spell my last name, just look at the radio show you're watching, and you know it's right there on the screen, Stranahan. You can probably see it. So, Stranahan at gmail.com. Let me know if you're interested in advertising. We're going to start that just as soon as I get things organized, and that's who the show is brought to you by. Now back to Michael Patrick Leahy. By the way, if you want to call in, 619-924-0786. Not sure how much longer we're going to have Mike, so if you want to get a question in for Michael, this may be your last chance, 619 so let's talk about on, on Friday this week uh, on the show, Mike. I'm going to be talking to someone from Twin Falls, Idaho, uh, and we, you and I, have both covered the story up there about the refugee program and how it's sort of a, I think, a, a microcosm. It's a good, uh, it's it's a good example of the problems that people are running into with this refugee story, but it's interesting. Most of the responses, and we've seen, uh, you, I know you've seen it because you and I have talked about it. The pushback from the mainstream media on the Twin Falls story in particular has been kind of amazing. I did reporting up there. You've done reporting on it. We've been attacked by the Washington Post, the New York Times. Uh, what, what are those? I, I, I can't, it's a website. And their name escapes me, and it's a well-known website. Who am I thinking of?
1: Oh, there was, a, I think, a, a, a
2: food magazine
1: that attacked us. A the food ID. magazine
2: attacked? The Daily Beast. That's what I was thinking of, the Daily Beast. Yeah, and uh, the Daily Beast, right. The Daily Beast attacked us a number of – and local newspapers in Idaho, uh, including the uh, paper in Boise, the Boise Register, I think it is. Um, is it the Register? I think the Idaho Statesman. Idaho statesman, forgive me, forgive me. I think I just made up a newspaper in Idaho, but the uh, the Idaho statesman attacked us. The local paper, the Times News in Twin Falls attacked us. What do you think, Mike, what do you think of the critics of refugee resettlement? Because uh, I have my opinion, but I'm curious to hear what you have to say.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I think they're advancing a, a, a propaganda agenda. Um, it's really the agenda that was established under the Clinton administration in 1993. And that one, as we've talked about, was designed to replace the idea of traditional assimilation of refugees into the United States, you know, where they learn English, where they learn our culture, they adopt our values, um, they, they become part of the United States. With, uh, with another approach where uh, they call it, quote, integration, end quote. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to make it uh, comparable to the integration of blacks and whites in the 1960s. It's nothing like that at all. What it really is is a, a desire to, to uh, make the cultures of the countries of origin superior to uh, the the culture of the United States. That's really what it's about, and you'll see all of these various efforts uh, uh, to keep their traditions and their values and their uh, their, their their ideas of civic government um, as ideas that the local community has to bend to, rather than uh, uh, the refugees accepting. American traditions and American values. And it, and they've done that through a variety of ways since uh, 1993 uh, when uh, essentially there was a change in even the countries of origin. As so we started having more Muslim countries arrive here, or, or more refugees from Muslim countries arrive then. And, uh, and really also I would argue it's been a change away from uh, bringing refugees who are here for uh, fleeing political repression, and really more to give them um, economic opportunities and to insert their particular worldviews into the United States.
2: Now, and what? So, do you think that there's a political agenda? I mean, do you think that there's, I, I want to say, nefarious. But it seems pretty open to me. Like, what? Why? Well, why it's do they an want an open to do
1: left-wing that? anti-American agenda. That I mean, essentially, it, it, it's you know, when you look at the election of of uh, 2016, and you want to see who voted for Donald Trump and who voted for Hillary Clinton. Donald Trump wants to pause refugee from uh, rivals from 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 Syria and countries hostile to the United States. He wants to build the wall. He wants to Uh, At least uh, remove uh, Illegal aliens Who have committed crimes from the United States At the very least That's what he said he wants to do Um, I I think what you see is And then you had a very pro-refugee Pro-immigrant Pro-open borders policy From Hillary Clinton Now the American people through the electoral college process Soundly rejected Hillary Clinton's uh, Proposals now, interestingly enough, she did win the popular vote, but when you look at that popular vote by about, I guess, a little over a million votes, 1.5 million, I think it's the latest, something like 62 million to 60.5 million, somewhere in that range, um, it changes constantly. But when you look, you break down that vote, if you take the United States and you break it down into uh, uh, 57 counties and county equivalents on the West Coast, ranging from San Diego to Seattle and on the East coast, ranging from Northern Virginia to Boston. And then about 21 urban counties like Chicago and, and uh, St. Louis and, and places like that. Uh, in those 79 counties and county equivalents, Hillary Clinton won resoundingly with 68% to 26%. She had a 42% more than two and a half to one margin over Trump, but in the rest of the country, Trump won 53% to 41%. Very, very solid. And this over 3,000 counties were uh, were in total Trump won. What does that tell you? It tells you that the people who live in those 79 counties and county equivalents, where Hillary Clinton won by more than two and a half to one, uh, have a very, very different worldview. And it's one where they don't think there are any worthy alternatives and where they have have almost a religious belief in the superior of their superiority of their views it is it is a rejection of a traditional Americanism and it's reflected in the media it's reflected in academia and and those are the views that we see when people are criticizing uh, the the efforts by Trump and others to limit um, uh, the refugee arrivals here in the united states
2: now one of the things that the supporters of this will say though is they'll say look at a place like idaho for instance the governor butch otter which by the way is a great name if you're going to be the governor of idaho butch otter
1: Butch otter is, is a great name for a governor is
2: a is a great name yeah absolutely but uh butch otter is a republican and there's pictures of him hugging and i'm not even that sounds like i'm I'm exaggerating. I'm not exaggerating. There's video of him hugging Hamdi Ulukaya, the pro refugee CEO of Chobani yogurt, the big the big employer. Well, I don't know how big employer is. He's a he's a pretty big employer, but he built the world's largest yogurt factory in Twin Falls, Idaho, and right. he employs depending upon who you want to believe him or a recent Washington Post story, uh, I think that's where it was 30% refugees. The post story seemed to give a different number, but I'm going to go with what Homby says. He says he employs 30% refugees. So one thing the critics will say of our reporting is, well, you're, you you know, you blamed Hillary Clinton, Mike, but what about a Republican like Butch Otter? This seems to be like Republicans are in favor of this too. So what's, you know, what, what's wrong? Yeah, with I, I, Well, refugees? I think,
1: I think some Republicans are, um, in favor of it. Um, Those Republicans didn't win the presidential nomination. (laughs) Those Republicans did not win the presidential election. Um, Here in Tennessee, we have uh, a governor who is very similar to Butch Otter in the sense that that Bill Haslam has embraced uh, the Syrian refugees' uh, arrival here in Tennessee. He's also claimed, uh, based on no facts, that he's completely okay with the vetting that the undergo. There is no vetting. It's very civ-like. And uh, you you have to rely upon the word of the person uh, making claims because there's no uh, referenceable database available. So, yeah, I mean, I think there are some Republicans who support it, but most common folk, most common voters uh, utterly reject it. And I think that's one of the reasons. Why did Donald Trump win Michigan? One of the reasons is because there is great unhappiness. In Michigan, among the average working class people in the uh, the the tremendous increase in the number of uh, Iraqi and Syrian refugees in that state.
2: We're talking to Michael Leahy. You can call in right now. 619-924-0786. By the way, Michael, we have some breaking news uh, right now, which is Donald Trump has picked as the head of EPA, Oklahoma Attorney General Scott Pruitt. That's his choice for the head of the EPA. And Oklahoma, of course, is known for fracking. And, oh, wait, hang on. There's another breaking news alert here. There's been a 7.5 earthquake reported in Flint, Michigan. No, wait, hang on. That's, that's Michael Moore's head exploding. Hang on. That's what that <laughs> one is. At the, at the EPA pick. But Donald Trump has picked Scott Pruitt as the EPA head. And I'm sure we're going to hear quite a bit about that when you pick the guy from the attorney general from Oklahoma— Oakleaf, or as I like to call it, Oprah, Oakleaf Brackenhoma. Uh, 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 when you pick that guy as your EPA chairman, that's kind of sending a message to the left, I would say. Um, uh, Mike, let's uh, let's uh, finish up. I want to talk about one other aspect of this story because uh, we covered the media reaction. We covered some of the, the, the health things. Um, let's talk about the economic impact of this We I covered this in Twin Falls about how it was obvious that the refugees have two advantages when you hire someone who's a refugee you can A, you can get them to work cheaper probably, that's that's probable but the, the more interesting aspect of that which I think is left behind a lot I don't think people talk about this nearly enough is they're more controllable right? So when a refugee comes over, he doesn't have the same status. In the United States, you can choose not to work, right? If you, if you Michael Leahy, decide, you know what, I'm going to take a year off, and I'm not going to work. I'm going to live on my savings. I'm going to do whatever. You can do that. The refugees who come over don't have that choice. They have to get a job within six months. And so it's weirdly, it seems like a kind of indentured servitude to me uh, when the refugees come over. And it, it might surprise some people. I think one of the things that's interesting about the way the media has covered this, which is essentially attacking Breitbart and attacking people like you and me who are reporters at Breitbart, they can't attack us on the facts, right? So no one's disputed the facts of your reporting about the tuberculosis numbers. Uh, And no one's disputed any of the facts I've reported about the political connections a guy like Hamdi Ulikaya from Chobani Yogurt has. So instead, it's just a typical you're racist, sexist, homophobic, uh, whatever, uh, Islamophobic, whatever the standard litany of things are that they use to attack Breitbart every day. That's what they've done on this story. You're Islamophobic and you're racist. And uh, that's what they've done. What do you think about the economic impact? Would you agree with my assessment calling it indentured servitude?
1: Well, uh, there may be some of that. I'm not sure if I would go quite that far because I think, Lee, uh, what you find is that although they are required to get jobs, not all of them uh, get jobs uh, upon their arrival. And in fact, many of them sign up for welfare and just start receiving it right away. In fact, uh, but I will say that those that, that that do have jobs, typically these are low-skilled workers who who uh, many of them don't speak English, and so therefore it, you're looking at minimum wage type jobs, uh, jobs in the meatpacking industry, in the food processing industry, in the dairy processing industry, as you said out in in uh, in Idaho at the Chibani plant there, um, and and so. Uh, I, I do think that there is a there are certain lack of options that they have and since they're really not – most of them aren't bringing a lot of value as potential workers here to the United States. They're really just sort of displacing American workers at the low end of the spectrum, which is apparently one of the reasons why the Chamber of Commerce is so interested in having uh, these refugees here to work uh low-wage facilities. Uh, in meat processing uh, plants and and the like, now I will say also a lot of these refugees, even those with jobs, uh, receive huge uh, benefits from the federal government. Uh, food stamps, um, uh, rent assistance, uh, and, and also you know this is medical coverage, which is ultimately covered by the states as well. And in fact, the Center for Immigration Studies estimated that each refugee, Arriving here in the United States costs state and federal taxpayers over $65,000 for the first five years that they are here. I think that's probably an understatement uh, because you, you throw in educational benefits and, and uh, free tuition at college and things of that nature, uh, which, uh, although it's often hard to document, is usually the case. Um, So in terms of what they receive. So the numbers of the financial benefits that the refugees receiving are are pretty
2: huge. Well, it's also interesting, too, that I, you know, uh, slightly switching topics. It's also you mentioned the number of Muslim refugees coming in. And, you know, what we've learned in the past few months, for instance, is the number of Muslim, the number of Syrian refugees coming in. Like I think the number is ninety nine percent of them are Muslims. Yeah, and right. when very few ta- Christians arriving very from few, Syria. Very few Christians, and interestingly, and the reason for um, that,
1: the reason for that, Lee, is because the the refugees initially are vetted by the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, which is notoriously
2: uh, anti Christian. Well, I'll tell you something else too, because I learned this when I was in Beirut uh, in twenty thirteen. I went to an HCR camp, and it was overwhelmingly Muslim, but I also interviewed Christian refugees. The Christians also don't go to the HCR. The the Christian refugees I met were being helped, for instance, by the local Christian churches, or they knew people, and they would get jobs and integrate. What I've said to people is I interviewed a number of, Uh, refugees from Syria who were in their early 20s, who were Christian. If you saw them, they would look like people who left the Abercrombie and Fitch at the mall, at the local mall, wherever you are in America. Does that make sense? Kind of preppy Mm -hmm. looking, right? That's the way they look. That's the way they look. When you went to the HCR camp, it was beards and burkas. By the way, beards and burkas is... It's, it's harder to say than it is to think in your head. I'm just going to point that out. But that's what it is. It's beards and burkas. And, uh, and that's who you saw at the HCR. And I actually talked to a Christian journalist there. And he pointed out to me, he said, when you see the camps outside, uh, and this is a Le- Lebanese Christian journalist. He said, when you see these big camps that Angelina Jolie goes to with tents, He goes, those aren't the Christians. And I said, why is that? And he said, because we don't live in tents. And that's what he told me. And so if anyone wants to write letters, send it to Lebanese journalist, care of Lebanon, and I'm sure it'll get to him. But uh, (laughs) but that's what that's if anyone's offended by that. uh, Take it as you want to. But that's what he told me. He said, we don't live in tents. And. I noticed that when I was in Beirut, I noticed that that the Christian refugees actually their lives had been displaced by this war, but they wanted their lives to go on as normally as possible. Does that make sense? And, Mm -hmm. and, and they weren't just sort of throwing themselves at the mercy of the, the HRC, which I found very, very interesting. Um, so that's that's it. Another thing the HRC spokesman told me at the time was they said a lot of the people who were in Syria uh had relatively affluent lives before they became refugees. She said sometimes we'll see people who were in really poor countries and they become refugees. Here it was a lot of people who were affluent, including the Muslims. And so I you know, I really think that the mainstream media has done such a horrible job reporting this story from not covering it in the first place, not covering—and we've been on the— America has been, period America has been on the wrong side of the Syrian war. I don't think there's a necessarily a clear right side, but the side of the people who are killing Christians, which is what I learned when I was over there, the rebels who we've been supporting, which John McCain, among others, was completely behind. Like, these are the—we're going to support the rebels, who we're still supporting— In places like Aleppo, um, as bad as Bashar al-Assad is, and he's not a good guy, he's less bad than what's replaced him. And I haven't heard anybody come up with a better replacement. And so what you have is these refugees who are coming over. You point out that they're overwhelmingly Muslim. They're not just overwhelmingly Muslim. They're the Muslims who are fleeing Syria because they say they're being persecuted by Assad which means they're on the side of Al-Qaeda, basically, and ISIS, that's who they're on the side of. Does that make sense? In other words, the people who are coming in, you say they're not just vetted. Because our because our foreign policy on Syria is so completely screwed up and backwards, we're bringing actually the opposite of who you'd want to bring in. I don't know if does that make sense, because I know it's foreign policy, so it gets tricky for people to understand. But we have a completely backwards foreign policy and so we're bringing in the wrong people by the boat by the plane load i don't think they take a boat to get over here but by the plane i load. think
1: our immigration policy lee in my view ought to be uh, uh, based upon the principle of what is best for the united states and if you if you go on that principle it is best uh, to bring in rep, uh, immigrants to the United States who who have some skill sets that can help make us a richer country. You're not talking about minimum wage, un uh, unskilled folks who uh, don't have any uh, assets, who don't have any capabilities to learn English or desire to learn English, and who reject uh, our our governance and culture.
2: Well, and that's why one of the people in Twin Falls who I interviewed told me, I asked them, when did you start seeing the problem? And they said, when I noticed the burkas at Walmart. They said, that's when I started to get worried, is suddenly there's people in full-on burkas at the Target or the Walmart, you know, at the local grocery store. And that's where things got weird in Twin Falls. And they they continue to get weird. Michael Patrick Leahy, thanks very much for taking the time. I appreciate you sticking around. And people can read your stuff at Breitbart News. And anything else they should know before we... Just go to Breitbart.com.
1: I have a story up today. Interestingly enough, that uh, the Somali refugees have been arriving in the United States at the highest rate ever during the past two months, as the Obama administration tries to bring in as many Somali refugees as it possibly can before Donald Trump Trump shuts the door.
2: That's great. Michael Patrick Leahy, always great to have you on. Always great to talk to you. Take care, my friend. Thanks, Lee. That was Michael Patrick Leahy, and uh, he's a guy, if you listen to the show, he's going to be, I'm sure I'm going to get him on again. I I love Mike. Does great work. He's a real reporter, and uh, it's always a pleasure to have him on. If you want to join the show, 619-924-0786. That number again. 619-924-0786. Six one nine nine two four zero seven eight six. So let's talk about fake news for a second. I was talking to Brandon Darby about this earlier. i got to get Brandon on, too, by the way. Brandon's got an explosive story coming up on Breitbart. But let's talk about fake news. I was talking to Brandon this morning about this. And uh, this is something I've talked about in Periscopes I've done recently. A little bit. I've been talking about the specifics of this Pizzagate story which is just a BS story. It's completely uh, crazy. It's it's wrong. Forget crazy. I'm not going to use that pejorative. It's simply mistaken. At root of the Pizzagate story is an unproven set of assertions that the words pizza and pasta and walnut sauce or whatever are somehow code words that pedophiles use to describe children that they want to have sex with. And no one's ever shown any proof of that. Never. Never. They've never shown any proof of that, that I've seen. Maybe I missed it in the hundreds of people talking about this. So I've talked about Pizzagate a little bit. And, of course, Pizzagate is now in the news because a guy showed up with guns and went into one of the pizza places that have been talked about uh, in in the, in the reporting. I don't even like using the word reporting. In the rumor mongering on Pizzagate. But the Pizzagate story is especially dangerous because it comes at a time when the media and politicians are talking about this idea of fake news. And it's not just the media. It's not just politicians. It's also services like Google, services like Facebook, who now want to talk about – censoring is not the right word, but flagging stories that they consider are fake news that they consider fake news. So let me talk about that. And I care about this because I'm a journalist, right? That's one reason I care about it. But I also care about it because I'm a consumer of news like you. I read the news. I listen to news. And so let's first talk about fake news that I think we can all agree on. There's a category of fake news that I don't think anybody can possibly defend. And I don't even put Pizzagate in that category, by the way. But I'm talking about stories that are completely made up. Let me give you an example. A couple months ago, a story started to go viral about an FBI agent who supposedly killed himself, killed his wife, and set fire to their house. And I forget where it was supposed to have happened. I think Maryland. But I went through, I did a periscope on that story at a time. That story, if you've heard that story about an FBI agent killing himself, killing his wife, he was investigating Hillary, has something to do with that. That story was completely made up. Now, when when I say completely made up, I don't mean they took a real story about a real FBI agent and his real wife who was a murder-suicide, and then they added a motive. I mean everything about that story was made up. The quote that they had from a police chief I found no evidence of that police chief or that police department even existing. So when I say made up, I mean made up. Completely made up from scratch. Now, who's going to defend that, right? Who is going to defend that kind of story? Only a made up person, right? So that's a category of fake news. And I've seen that a few times where there's no truth to it at all whatsoever. There was no there there in any way. That category of fake news, and by the way, that story, slightly viral. That story was repeated. If you Google it, you'll still find sources that repeat that story. There was another story. Let me give you another example. There was a story a few months ago about a black Donald Trump supporter who left a rally and was shot to death right outside the, the the rally or close to it. And they showed a picture. That story was completely made up. And I went through and I proved that at the time. So this category of stories that are completely made up, let's establish that. But we have a caller in line. I don't want to keep him waiting. I'm going to continue this rant in a second. Hey, you're on the air. How's
0: it going? Hey, Lee, it's going pretty good. I'm excited to be on your show. Looking forward to it.
2: Thanks. So, I've, Thanks. What's on your mind I've today? Been,
0: I've been following your Twitter account and the uh, crazy discussions about Pizzagate and wanted to break down a couple things, um, really, and see, like, what what is it that people think they're getting out of this topic? Do we think that we're going to somehow defeat the left if we can somehow uncover this crazy conspiracy and, and prove it's true? Or are we going to send them all away and defeat them ultimately, I I don't think that's going to happen even if it was true. And a lot of people defend themselves by saying they're helping children and helping victims. I think if you want to do that, you should get involved locally, you know, with victim trafficking or or victims of abuse. I I think this is a, a shortcut for people. Instead of doing the hard work to try to, you know, go up against these guys every day, I think they're just looking for the easy way out.
2: Well, I think you make a great point here. There is something uh, lazy. I don't know what else to call it. There's something lazy about it, uh, where it's it's. I I I guess they think it's fun to rumor monger. I guess they think it's sort of you know it's like a pastime for them. Um, And it's you know somebody who practices journalism for a living. I not only practice journalism. I'm pretty darn good at it at this point, so I can I can stop practicing any time. But uh, as somebody who does journalism for a living, it's very irritating. But let me read you a quote. I'm looking for the quote right now. Let me read you a quote uh, that is an example of how far this has gone. One second. Feel free to, if, while, I'm, while I'm looking this up, feel free to hum or anything like that <laughs> you want to do in the background. Hang on Absolutely. one second. Where is it here? Uh, so this is a quote. When I think about all the children Hillary Clinton has personally murdered and chopped up and raped, I have zero fear of standing up against her. I'm going to to repeat that again. I'll try to do it with a gruffer voice. Let me try it again. When I think about all the children that Hillary Clinton has personally murdered and chopped up and raped, I have no fear of standing up against her. That's Alex Jones who said that. So that was my Alex Jones impression. Thank you very much. That's Alex Jones who said that. He said that in a YouTube video. Now, here's the thing, and by the way, I'm not going to say where you're calling from, but you, you're, uh, your your code is someplace where you might be familiar with Alex Jones. Let me leave it at that. Um, uh, uh, for Alex Jones to say that Hillary Clinton has quote personally, personally murdered and chopped up and raped. That's with no victims, kind of,
0: right? And no bodies. That's right. And no witnesses. And No no evidence, not even a shred. And I would would implore people to think, you know, if if this is this wide-ranging conspiracy with so many people, is there no one that sees these alleged heinous crimes, really the worst crimes that people are capable of? There's no one, not a single person that just says, "I, I can't be a party to this. I don't care what happens to me. I have to come forward. I... I, took, I mean, look at what happens to the mafia. Look what happened with WikiLeaks. Look what happened to the DNC. Those things are relatively mundane compared to what we're talking about. And people still saw that, that there were terrible things going on, that, and somebody had to, to, you know, blow the whistle. And if, if what people think is true was really happening, there's no way that any normal person, any conspiracy of more than two or three people would hold together for more than five minutes because it's too horrible. What? Someone would break.
2: And, and not just that. You make a great point, but not just that. And this is well, – look, I talked to a source in law enforcement that I found, who I, who I have, who I go to frequently, when these rumors started to break. And I said to them, do you think there's any truth at all to this idea that the, Hillary Clinton was raping children? This was a month ago. And they said, absolutely not. I said, I'm going to tell you my theory, right, because this is what I believe. I believe if you're a cop, right, and Bill Clinton is uh, sleeping around, right, he's got mistresses, are you going to risk your career for that? And the answer is maybe, but probably not, and I'm not saying I blame you. Does that make sense? In other words, if, if you're a cop and you know that Bill Clinton has a mistress, I understand why you don't come forward on that story. Does that make and that's sense? that's not a like, crime.
0: Yeah, and that's, that's not a, even a crime.
2: That's just right, bad but, behavior. But but if you're a cop and you think Bill Clinton is raping five-year-olds or Hillary Clinton is raping five-year-olds, that's not even a question in your mind. Is Could it ruin your career? You don't care at that point. Does that make sense? You don't. And so I said, I said to this cop, I said, I can't – I can imagine people not coming forward and reporting, and like I say, even crimes. Like let's say there's a bribery thing. I can see a cop not coming forward. On a bribery thing. I'm not saying it's right, but it makes sense to me at least, right? But raping children, there's no law enforcement officer. Uh, sorry. Nobody's going, As,
0: oh, that's just the Clintons. We, we know it goes on, but
2: you know, that's give exactly a pass. right. Yeah. Clintons will be Clintons. Um, what they do. Uh, no one, yeah, just what they do. We can't help it. But I, I think people do do that about. If he's cheating, I mean, Bill Clinton told Monica Lewinsky he'd had hundreds of affairs, right? That's what he said to her, according to her. It's right there in the testimony. Um, he said he'd had hundreds of affairs. Somebody knew about that, right? So that's conceivable sure. to me. But children, come on. And 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 when Alex is out there saying stuff like personally, personally chopped up, and you can't even say it, like personally chopped up,
0: right, right. As if, as if anyone could imagine that, you know, that's 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 so far beyond even you know the extreme human experience. It's just it's so crazy. And where where are all the missing children? I mean, this, this obviously it's, it's supposed to be this huge ring, and so you would think there'd be multiple victims. So what? Everybody that shows up to a fundraiser, they're like, hey, where'd the kids go? Eh,
2: don't well, worry about the it. Fl- I had Hillary was babysitting them.
3: Yeah. And the next just, I you know, knew, I
2: went over there. She said, I don't know. I can't find him. Would you like some pulled pork? And I said, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not so sure about that because I've heard some things. But anyway, hey, thanks for calling. Appreciate you calling. Thanks, Call please. back anytime. Take care. We have another caller on the line here. And let me just hit the magic button. Hi, how are you doing? What's on your mind today?
3: Are you talking to me? Yes, I am. Hi, Lee. This is Kim. Hey, Kim. How, how are you, you? doing? I'm fine. fine. How are you?
2: I'm doing great. Doing great. Thanks for Good. calling in. What's on your Good.
3: mind? Good. Well, on this um, Pizzagate going hysteria thing, uh, my theory, and I tried to touch on it last night on your Periscope, my thought process anyway, and I think a lot of innocent people got sucked into this, okay, on, you know, people, you know, being accused or innocent and people that were actually, you know, retweeting and stuff were innocent also because they're just like, oh, my gosh, I have to, you know. But there are people in there, and this is my theory. When WikiLeaks came out um, on the Podesta emails, and they were sending out a new batch every day, every morning, every morning, every morning, and people were waiting on that batch to drop. You know, it was like an anticipatory, okay, and we've all got to get to work. Everybody thought, let's see if we can glean through this and see if we can find one little sniglet or something because it's up to us to do it because the mainstream media will not research this stuff. And it's up to us to help Breitbart. It's up to us to help whoever else maybe is an independent journalist out there that is investigating it. And we thought, all hands on deck there's a lot of people with that thought process. So we get into that mode and, and I never did any, I never tweeted anything with Pizzagate just so you're aware. Um because I as soon as I saw that code list, I said, Yeah, no, that's not happening. Um but anyway, I think people were in that frame of mind and there were a lot of people that got almost hysterical over it because they were in that mode of investigating and digging and digging and digging. And, Oh, let's go to this website and that website and dig, dig, dig. And I think that that is part of what might have happened to cause the hysteria. And it almost took on like a Salem witch trial thing um, where people were imagining things and reading into things. But I will tell you when you were talking about your, um, uh, policeman friend yeah if if any nurse policeman uh, fireman anybody like that um that is responsible for um public safety or you know public health whatever if we are suspicious in the least of somebody being either sexually or physically or mentally even abused we have um we have a mandate to report. We no, that's are, right. There's a, we,
2: there's, a, there's, a, there's an obligation. It's not even you can be held are, legally yes. liable. Yeah.
3: Absolutely, we are. We we have to report. If we do not report, we can lose our jobs. So and we can lose our licenses to practice or whatever. So we we are mandated to report. So to answer that question even further you know would we if there were two consenting adults that were having an affair on the side probably not you know in fact probably definitely not i would say you know in this day and age but if it involves a minor we have to report it we have to report it if we don't we could lose our jobs
2: and then we have to let
3: the authorities investigate
2: i think that's a great point kim let me go back to your first point um, mm-hmm. about people trying to help out with the investigation, I think that that's I think that there is certainly some truth to that, but <laughs> I think that the other thing that happened during the WikiLeaks drops the day after day, as you mentioned, a Podesta emails coming out, is yep. that some people realized that you if you find stuff, you can get a lot of retweets or likes or whatever currency. You get on Twitter right for I can see that content. from
3: people that are into that kind of thing yeah
2: which which by the way, I think a a lot of people a lot are. Of that's why I are. say that I, I I say the currency of it, and I understand the currency of it, in other words, look, if you tweet, it's like doing comedy okay uh mm-hmm. i and I say this because I did improv comedy for like ten years in l a so oh cool. Whether a joke is, eh, that's not that cool, (laughs) but but it was, but it was fun. But here's the thing about a joke, right? When you write a joke at home and you're doing, you're doing stand-up, when you write the joke at home, you think it's funny. Obviously you wouldn't have written it down, but you don't know if it's funny until you get it up in front of an audience. Does that make sense? In other words, Mm -hmm. you, you can have in your head, the idea, this is very funny. Then you tell it, nobody laughs. Whatever your opinion was, it's apparently not funny, or at least not funny to that audience. And if you and tell not it, to
3: the masses.
2: <laughs> that's right. And if you tell it to audience after audience after audience, and nobody laughs, then you were wrong. The joke wasn't funny, and you should drop it from your routine, right? So right. So it's it's similar with Twitter. And and because I had this, I I did stand up about three times, and. I didn't like the feeling of I'd write something and then I'd have to go up in front of an audience and the thing that I thought was funny didn't get the reaction I I thought it would. I didn't like that. With improv, the reason I did it for 10 years is because I had no time to overthink it. Does that make sense? Like yes. You just yes. Say, you, say, you say something and you get an immediate reaction. This is right. why I like Twitter. I've, I've thought about this because I, I like Twitter. I'm, I'm one of the... I've been using Twitter longer than 99.9%. There's some service you can use to check that out. But, like, I got into Twitter in the first few months. And wow. uh, and I've been using Twitter longer than uh, most people. One of the reasons I like it and one of the reasons I continue to use it is because I like the instantaneous feedback. If I tell a joke on Twitter and eight people retweet it right away, it was funny at least to eight people right that's that's why i like it so i get so i get that i'm not even knocking people uh this is one of the things that twitter gives you it's a feedback mechanism right so but i think that there are some people who do this for a living okay or who are trying to do this for a living um and the and and I like—I don't know how else to put it. Like, there's a difference between amateurs and then professionals, and then people who are trying to make that jump. So, you know, I'm a professional journalist.
3: Well, and that's why they have to take your course on citizen journalism.
2: That's a great plug, and your check is in the mail. But um, you're welcome. <laughs> but, but, but 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 no. What I mean is, I'm a professional journalist for one reason because I get paid to do it. Anybody who gets paid to do it, you're a professional by definition. You right. You follow me? Anybody who's you. not paid, paid to do it, they're an amateur by definition. There are amateur journalists who are better than professional journalists, so I'm not making a value judgment. I'm saying that's the way those categories break down. Right. And then, then there are people in the middle who want to be professional. They want to build up their social status. They want to build up their Twitter following. And I mm-hmm. think those people are the ones – those are the people who I've been trying to call out. A guy like Alex Jones, I don't know if you heard the quote that yeah. I said. To and I have a theory on that. I have okay, a go ahead. theory
3: on why he said what he said. Now, that quote, he said, personally cut up, what did he say? Personally cut up, oh, the, killed, and raped?
2: He, yeah, here's what he said. Here's what he said. My, here's my Alex Jones impression again. Okay. And when I think about all the children when I think about all the children, Hillary Clinton is personally murdered and chopped up and raped. Right. I have zero fear of standing up against her. That's what he said. And then he, he went on to say, Yeah, you heard me right. Hillary Clinton has personally murdered children. Now I'm getting that, by the way, I gotta point that out. I'm getting that from a Washington Post article, but it's quoting him okay. and saying that's what he quoted. And it quotes the YouTube video. And I I could just go up and I probably will for tomorrow's show. I'll go up and grab the YouTube gonna- video and Yeah, let's check
3: that out, because here's what I think he might have said, and I would like to just confirm that uh, quote before I, you know. He might have said, personally responsible for murdering, cutting up, because of abortion.
2: Well, well, what he said, uh, what they say in the Washington Post article is, and I'm quoting from the Post article, Jones eventually tied his comments about Clinton to U.S. policy in Syria. That's... Oh, that being, well
3: there you go i mean they they did drone a lot of they i mean yeah well yeah but i don't but i don't
2: i yeah yeah maybe yeah, i i, mean,
3: I have, uh, not per i mean personally maybe i mean you know second handly person you know not like she went over to syria with a machete you know but uh you know she did uh make some decisions that were responsible for kids dying well, it, and
2: stuff it, If he if he brought it up in the context of this Pizzagate story, childhood sex ring, and the other this brings up the other thing. By the way, I should point out the other thing that the people do. um, There's such a thing as confirmation bias, right? If that's a real psychological phenomenon, if you can get people to think something, uh, if you can get them to agree to something, people are very reticent. People are very very reticent to drop it, to let it go, to change their mind, to admit that they were wrong. And Absolutely. One of, the, one of the things I say to people all the time is one of the reasons I'm right on stories is because as soon as I'm wrong, as soon as I realize I'm wrong, I drop You'll the wrong it. thing. The story, I, the story I always tell about that, and it's too much to go into on today's show, but is Benghazi, right? When I started right. to look into Benghazi, I thought, like everybody on the right, that the video had nothing to do with the attack on Benghazi. When I started to research, and I got back to the original tweets, I saw two things. When the attack first happened, people in Libya were tweeting about it, and they said, and this was immediately before Hillary Clinton talked about it, before she knew about it, before anybody knew about it, right? They said two things. They said, this group al-Nusra is attacking the embassy, and they're mad about that video. So okay. it took me a few minutes for my brain to wrap... Because I'm like, well, uh, that's not what? Like, That's not the talk- narrative. That's not the narrative. They're talking about the video. But then... Mm-hmm. So I, I immediately went, gee, this contradicts what I think. And rather than mm-hmm. hold on to that and try to figure out how to desperately like... Well, no, but it must... See, what a lot of people do in that case is they, they go like, well, someone must have planted the tweet. And then yeah, go, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. No, you can't do you're, that you're, because it's Twitter. You can't change the dates. And then they go, well, how do you know the CIA didn't get to? And then they're in the realm of complete fantasy, right? Right. And I mean, opposed- go for the obvious. <laughs> that, that's exactly right. And what I've seen time and time again on this Pizzagate thing is people, you'll ask for a bit of proof. Like, okay, let's look at this list. You're saying – they're saying, like, well, the FBI, it's their list of pedophile words. And I'm like, well, where's your proof of that? And they'll go, well, here's a tweet. I'm like, well, the tweet is a tweet. Where's your proof that the FBI said that? That's what I want to know. And they mm-hmm. go, well, wow. and they sh- they'll switch topics or they'll do something mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. desperately hold on to it. And so part of the reason I go through those exercises on Twitter, right, is because I want people to have to confront (laughs) their own inner BS detector. I don't know how else to put it. I want them to admit, and I want everybody watching, because it's a public forum on Twitter, right? That's Mm -hmm. not a conversation. I would not get into that conversation with somebody at a bar privately. Does that make sense? I'm Mm -hmm. just not interested.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Because I don't even, by the way, I don't even blame people for not, uh, you know, here's this is the way I feel about it, right? Like, mm-hmm. let's say you're, you're – uh, I'll use the John Edwards story. Let's say you're caught cheating on your spouse, and your spouse confronts you and says, are you cheating on me? And your response is no. I, I don't blame the person for the first no. Does that make sense? Like, I really Absolutely, don't.
3: Absolutely, because – you trust and believe that
2: person, so right. you're going to say, right. "Okay,
3: good," and you want to believe that no. You well, definitely want to believe that no.
2: But I'm going a step further. I'm saying I don't even believe that. Per, I don't even blame the person for the first no. In other words, if your spouse comes to you and says, "Are you cheating?" If your response is, "Uh, no," and that's you're because lying,
3: you don't want your world turned upside down.
2: That's right. And now right. your brain is trying to process everything. However, mm-hmm. and then, if, and then. If like 10 minutes later you admit it, I like, I gave you a gimme on that. Like, okay, fine. I get it. What a guy like John Edwards did <laughs> was he didn't just deny it. I understand he's confronted with reporters in the middle of the night and he hides in a bath. I get that part. The part I don't get is like having your assistant pretend to be your mistress's child's father and then sending them to live with them. Like that's a step too far.
3: Right? Yeah, to that's, me, that's 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 sociopathic
2: at that point. <laughs> that's sociopathic. So if I confront somebody and they go like, uh, I, I say, well, there's no proof that the FBI said that, and they're like, okay, well, what about this? I'm okay with that. Like, okay, I just confronted you. You you don't want to admit it yet. That's cool, but let's keep talking. But if they if they immediately, I can tell this immediately. If they go off into, and the thing I hate worst about this Pizzagate thing, and it's not new, and I've seen it time and time again, and you've seen it online too, Kim. The -hmm. thing I hate is when they, if you don't buy into their BS, they turn around and attack you and go, well, gee, you're denying it. I wonder if you're part of it. Like, uh, so what are you doing? You're the
3: pedo now. Are you a pedo? I bet you're a pedo. Oh, let me check you out now. It's yeah. the
2: worst thing in the world. It is, it is, it, it's an insult. It's an ad hominem. But it's also mm-hmm. a threat. And the, there's only one reason they do that. Let's face it. And by the way, it's bullying, too. It's bullying. It's oh, bullying. Definitely. And, and the reason I say to people, I've said it to people, and I, I don't get into a big explanation of why I say some things on Twitter, but somebody said, no, no, we're just investigating. We love Andrew Breitbart. And I said, no, you don't. You hate him. And the reason I say that is because Andrew hated bullying. And when you say to somebody, how dare you question me? How dare you question whether this story is true? And in fact, if you question it, I'm going to accuse you of being a pedophile. That is intended to have a chilling effect on conversation. Oh,
3: definitely. It shuts you up, yeah. And not it's the inti- debate is closed.
2: And it's intended to make people who are watching shut up, too. Who are like, mm-hmm. well... I don't know. He he asked a reasonable question. Where's your proof? The FBI said that you didn't answer because then they know if you jump in and help. It's a Kitty Genovese story. I think that's what it is. Kitty Genovese is a woman who she was oh, I remember. Stabbed, stabbed to death in New York. Right. And group if, mentality. If, if, if I'm thinking of the same story, was that her name? Was that is it Kitty Genevieve? I would hate to think. Kitty
3: Genevieve, yeah, and she was stabbed in the middle of the street, and there were hundreds that's, of people that watched it and witnessed it, but nobody, not that one person, stepped forward.
2: That's right. And, to help. and what it is is they didn't want to get stabbed, right? That's what it was. They didn't want to get stabbed. Well, okay. and they didn't
3: want to be the first one. Had one person want, gone out, probably a bunch of them would have run out.
2: Right, which is, which is what we saw in 9-11. Which mm-hmm. is exactly what we saw in nine eleven, which is when they got up. Let's roll. When they got up and and everybody attacked the hijackers, right?
3: Right. Right. It's they a, got group, out of a situation. It's a group mentality, it's a group think. And sometimes it works positively and sometimes it works negatively, but it takes that one person to be the first olive out of the bottle, as my mom would say. Because if you ever notice you turn over a bottle of olives and they all just stay inside, but once you wiggle that one out, all of them
2: rush out. So no, that no, that's exactly right. So what, what ended up happening was if you see that if you question the story, you're going to get called a pedophile. And by the way, not by like minor random people on Twitter. There are people with big right. following on Twitter. Yeah. Oh, and then yeah. They're all, oh, yeah. Then there are then little minions coming. This is why I block. By the way, this is why I block people. I used to never block people. But I, I'm too old and too busy to deal with, I get the hive mentality, and i I got to tell them, I, I've seen it before. That's why I say I've been on Twitter a long time. I've seen it before. I've seen this thing before, where if you go, and I'll give an example on the left. Well, I don't know, I'm not sure, why are you calling Trump a Nazi? Well, like, I don't think he's a Nazi. Oh, really, you don't think he's a Nazi? Well, you're a Nazi, right? It's that mm-hmm. it, It's that same bullying thing of like, Oh well, if you if you defend Trump, you're a Trump humper, and I'm going to jump in, right? And by the way, people yeah. who supported supported Trump did the same thing. The whole the whole cuck thing and everything like that. Yeah,
3: uh, yeah.
2: That that is that is in fact part of it. That really is. And um,
3: yeah, and and sometimes they're big accounts, and and it's 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 very intimidating. Like one time, Deborah Messing decided she was going to. Come in on something that I had posted on a hashtag, and she in, And I thought, Oh my gosh, Deborah Messing just retweeted. She t- retweeted me, you know. And then yeah. I had I I just sat there for the next four hours and blocked probably a hundred people. I just block 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 block, you know. And she said, Well, when Hillary wins, uh, you can apologize to me. And it was before the election, and I said, You can wait a long time for that apology.
2: You'll well, never do, get yeah. it. Apologize yet? <laughs> uh,
3: no, why would I apologize? Because Trump won, but, um, you know, she's well, all to this now recount thing, you know, and, and having people, yeah, was, you know, confront the uh, electors, and that's what – it's like, God, but this woman just stopped the stupidity. But, um, yeah, no, yeah I got attacked, it's always, and it, it's awful to get attacked like that, because it's just like <laughs> – might as well close out your account and leave for a while, and come back like eight hours later when it well, all that, dies the,
2: down. You're exactly right, and that's that's why in this Pizzagate thing, because people are sometimes because I don't even see some of them. Some of the stuff where people are attacking me, I've blocked them already, or there's someone who whatever, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. and and I I've asked a real straightforward, simple thing: is what's your claim and what's the proof of it? But the other thing that they do, and we gotta we gotta wrap up here in a minute because the show's almost over. Yeah. The other thing that they do is if they can't come up with an explanation on something. They just expand it out. And so it becomes this further expanded thing to the point where Pizzagate, let's define it. Pizzagate is the claim that John Podesta and other high-ranking Democrats, and some Republicans, I guess, were using code words in emails Mm -hmm. to describe Mm -hmm. child molestation, right? right? That's what it is. If you're just saying, well, what about pedophilia? Is that real? Well, of course it's real, but that's of not. Of course pizza. it is,
3: and it's and it is real in higher up echelons, very very serious. But this is not that. Which is exactly. And what you're you're going up the wrong and that's route why to, I get to the middle of the tree, you know.
2: Yeah, no. Um, that's no, that's right. Hey Kim, we got to wrap it up here because we we have okay. less than a minute left to show. Thanks a lot for calling. Call back anytime. Great seeing you. I'll see you on Twitter. And take care. Bye-bye. So there we go. Thanks to our callers. Thanks to Michael Patrick Leahy for being part of this show. I got more to say on fake news, but luckily I'll be doing this show two hours a day, Monday through Friday, every day for the next few weeks. You can catch it here, 2 p.m. Eastern. You know when it is. You can catch the recaps later. You can catch it on iTunes as well later. I'm not sure when that propagates through, but it will propagate through. Until next time, this is Lee Stranahan. I am trying to keep you smarter. I'm going to keep doing it. And all you have to do is just not argue with me. That's not my full slogan. I'll come up with something better later. Anyway, love you guys. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.